Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Coming up on this week's show, Sega show off a rare prototype. Yori Geller apologizes to Nintendo. And we chat the history of video game music with DJ Yoda. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week by our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. And right now, you need to check out Game Boy, the box art collection, which is a celebration of the best cover artwork for the console that kickstarted the handheld games industry. You can pre-order right now. It comes out on the 14th of December at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 253, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our weekly geek out about all things retro gaming. And is it too early to say, Merry Christmas, boys? Oh, I don't know, because everybody's been putting all their decorations up super early this year. You know, just with everything that's going on, I think it's been acceptable, so... I don't think it is too early. I think we're all right yeah. to say it. You know what? Last year I got a call from Dan. And yeah. he said, I'm driving over Trent Bridge now and I see a Christmas tree. And it's <laughs> and it's bloody November like that. But this year he's already got all the stuff up. So I, I think it's fine this year, isn't it? It's we're fine all, this year. We're all missing yeah. fest, festive stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we need to spread a bit of Christmas joy a bit early this year. It's all good, isn't it? And of course, this is our first show of December. And actually, even though it feels like, you know, obviously the month's just started, it is our final normal Retro Hour podcast of the year before our Christmas specials kick in. I can't believe that because of we've, we were actually scrambling for a guest this week and we've got a really, really cool guest that Ravi's bagged. But really interestingly, like we we're like, we need one more guest. We need one more guest. And then that's it. We've got the Christmas specials and stuff. But we've actually got about five lined up now, haven't we? <laughs> like, Don't jinx it, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to touch wood right now, touching the desk and everything. But yeah, we got an awesome guest this week, um, our final guest of the year, uh, which I, I'm really excited to hear. Yeah, we've got um, DJ Yoda. So DJ Yoda's a multi-award winning hip-hop DJ and producer. But he's doing a tour at the moment, which um, I actually managed to support him on, which was amazing, doing a a one gig and it's the history of video games. So what he's actually doing in this tour is he's exploring the history of video games for like a 90 minute set. And in that he's got like, it goes from Pong to yeah. pretty much modern day. He's got a bit of bias for the eighties and nineties, of course, being, being raised in that time, but he's got stuff like the street fighter soundtrack, um, the grime version of that as well, mixed in with like Mario. And it's a big 90 minute set audio visual. But also, he's been involved in like the rhythm games as well. So they made a whole level dedicated to DJ Yoda on DJ Hero. And he's also judged the DMC DJ World Finals, which is, you know, a competition that's been running since 1985. And if you check that out, there's some amazing stuff on there. There's even guys mixing with like analog tape and all sorts. You know, it's a real historic competition. So it's great to have uh, Yoda on this week. And I've been a fan of him since he did, um, probably around early 2000s, he did um, a couple of 80s how to cut and paste 
CDs, didn't they? And there was one I remember where he played stuff like Johnny Hates Jazz and Stock Aiken Waterman songs, but mixed it into like TV themes and early hip hop and everything. And it was fantastic. Yeah, he's kind of done that recently with Stranger Things. So he did a Stranger Things remix album and he was mixing like, you know, Attack on Precinct 13, John Carpenter soundtracks and stuff and all that 80s synthy stuff. And that did really, really well. So we're going to talk about general culture as well at the time and also a bit about music technology because we know he's a he's a lover of the analogue. Yeah, so DJ Yoda is going to be our special guest. He'll be on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, we've got lots of stories to get through this week. Before we do that, though, let's give a huge thank you to one of our favourite supporters of the Retro Hour podcast. We love them all, but how much do we love Retro Gamer magazine? Oh, I love it so much. And this this month's looks really interesting, actually. They've got um, History of Turrican. Now, that was a cool game, and... Uh, Joe, that actually made it onto quite a few consoles as well. Yeah, that made it onto a lot of consoles. And something I've noticed that they've got this month, which I'm really excited about, is a complete guide of Skies of Arcadia, which is one of my favourite RPGs for the Dreamcast. And I've been wanting to get my hands on this for, for a long time, on this game for a long time. It's a very expensive game, but really looking forward to reading all about it this month. And they've actually got um, 40 years of Battle Zone that they're covering, looking back at the legendary arcade game, the making of John Madden football, 25 years of Worms as well. Team 17's Wriggly Warmongers actually came out <laughs> 25 years ago, that game debut. There's actually, you know, Retro Gamer this month, there's a hell of a lot on the cover. Um, obviously, it's their big Christmas issue. So uh, if you love classic games, definitely check out this month's issue of Retro Gamer magazine. And of course, it's brought to you by our good friends at Future Publishing, who also publish lots of other gaming mags as well, including PC Gamer, Official PlayStation Magazine, and Edge magazine too, which I know you've been reading recently, Ravi, because you're still trying to get your head around the uh, the new consoles at the moment. Yeah, so I, I've always liked Edge, and uh, you know when I was younger, I always thought, oh, I, this is too cool for me. But now I'm an old guy, <laughs> I'm going to check out <laughs> Edge and and check out the cutting edge kind of stuff at the moment, and uh, it's really fantastic because the deal that we have for you is free issues of either magazine for one pound, which is just insane. Because we've run this before. And the amount of people who get in touch on Twitter and go, uh, you know, send me the code for this, I need to get involved in it, because it is an incredible offer. You're saving up to 95% off the price of them. You get three issues for just a pound. And this offer is exclusively for listeners of the Retro Hour podcast. So you know that we look after you. So what you need to do to get involved in this right now, to get three issues for just one pound, is use our offer by visiting this website, magazinesdirect.com forward slash Retro Hour 341. So that's magazinesdirect.com forward slash Retro Hour 341. And I'll put that link in this week's show notes as well. Thanks to our very good friends at Retro Gamer Magazine. Now, we talked about anniversaries there. Worms being 25 years old, which blows my mind. But also Sega have been celebrating a big anniversary this year as well. 60 years of Sega. And they've released a video that kind of gives us a bit of a history of the last 60 years of this legendary company. And I don't know if you guys have watched this. I mean, it's, it's a Japanese language video. It's around 22 minutes long. And it's got um, Sega producer and manager um, Hiroyuki Miyazaki. Hope I pronounced his name right. Probably not. But he actually goes through the timeline of their consoles from the SG-1000 right the way up to their final console, the Dreamcast. But the thing that everyone is talking about is... They show a sneaky little prototype in here 
that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I'm glad you said his name there because I was actually practicing it before the show because <laughs> I thought it's a Sega story. Dan will get me to do it. So, <laughs> but you kind of like say it. how you how you rehearsed. I think you said it better than I rehearsed it. So, but yeah, this this was really interesting. So, those of you who don't know, the Sega Nomad was a handheld Mega Drive, essentially handheld Genesis. That was in, after the Game Gear, wasn't it? Yes. So it, essentially, it, it looks like a Game Gear, but it was um, as I say, but it was black. It is black. Um, it's got like a slanted top, but essentially it was just a mega drive it was just a portable mega drive and the idea was it was meant to be like this is finally going to dethrone the game boy obviously spoiler alert it didn't but what's really interesting is they've never shown off the prototype of it before and in this video they show it off and it's called the sega venus which i think is really cool because i know sega used you know the planets as a lot of their kind of code names obviously the sega saturn it stuck with the saturn name but i always knew that like the 32x was originally called like the sega neptune or something like that or there was one in between the 32x and the saturn which was called the neptune um but yeah the sega venus which looks more like a game gear than it the looks nomad awful, did <laughs> what do you think i like yeah. it i like the look of it interestingly it's like gray and white um, but it, it looks similar to the Nomad, but the Nomad had like weird, janky, slanted angles and stuff on the top of it and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, they've never shown it off before, which is really interesting. And like I say, I don't think we knew. I mean, I didn't know, but I don't think we as the public knew that it was initially called the Venus. And the prototype is still called the Venus, which I think is really cool. It's, it's weird, it, isn't it? Yeah. It's weird. Like I've got a white Game Gear. Which yeah, you have. developer's yeah. one. And... This, to me, looks like a pop station or something. It looks really... Everything seems really square on it. It looks a little bit like a Neo Geo Pocket. Yeah, like the Nomad as well. That was a weird console. That It, it came mm. out in North America, right? But yeah. really, we didn't see many of them over here, did we? No, my, my friend Richard had one um, where the screen didn't work, but you got a cable with it, which you could connect to your TV, so... So it was essentially a Mega Drive. And you could also daisy chain controllers off it as well to play two player. So it was it was a weird console, like you say. It was a weird handheld, but it's it's kinda like the Switch, do you know what I mean? Like it's a it was a console, but it was a handheld. It, it's a weird one. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see that it was called the Venus and that you know the prototype is out now. And it's like- a real battery muncher as well i imagine yeah I, games I, I, I was gonna say i think it was you know the, the game gear is like famous for being a battery muncher i think this was worse i think you got like two hours play time out of like six six double a batteries or something like that so yeah probably the reason it never took off i wonder how many um prototypes that they have and that they've still got hidden yeah. and also nintendo you know there might be some really weird in-betweeny kind of consoles there yeah definitely what I find interesting is this article on Nintendo Life, you know, props Nintendo Life, we love you guys. Um, I know we got a little tweet off them last week, the big fans of our show too. Uh, but this, on the comments section of this article, people are saying how much better this prototype Venus looks than the actual released Nomad. And like you said, Ravi, you're, you're not a fan of the way this looks. I'm not really. I mean, I actually thought the Nomad looked pretty good. You know, yeah, admittedly, right. it's got all those weird slants and everything on it, but that kind of, it dates it from that kind of 90s Sega Attitude era for me. It never really appealed to me until I went to one of the events and I saw a Nomad with one of these, like, McWill modern screens mm. on it, and I thought, oh, my God, that looks so good. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I guess it's just variation, isn't it? That's what people are after. And uh, this is a new variant. You know, 
Yeah. It, again, it's something that we haven't seen before. I mean, looking at it, like you said, Joe, it's a bit like a more compact Game Gear, mm. um, but it's kind of in a kind of beigey color and this gray around the screen. Um, it's got six buttons on there. You know, obviously the, the, the six button Mega Drive controller D pad looks like it's straight off a Mega Drive controller, but it does remind me of like, a, <laughs> I don't know, like a, an, an 80s portable radio or something. It doesn't look yeah, like Yeah. I can see where you're coming from, but it, you know what? It's just reminded me of looking at it again. It looks a little bit like the Japanese Sega Saturn because the Japanese Sega Saturn was that right. colour yeah, scheme. Yeah. So yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know if that's what they were going for or what. Maybe it was 95. It was around that time. Maybe someone's going to do a mod where they take their Nomad and then they make a little custom case like this and put it inside. Ooh, I don't know. Be the, the Nomad's expensive, isn't it? So <laughs> it depends <laughs> if people want to do it or not. But yeah, that would be interesting to see. Now let's talk about something else that's been everywhere this week actually i probably watched about six videos on this over the last couple of days and it's something we've talked about before the mega 65 and this has been a project that i've been following um god probably for as long as we've been doing the show now i think they've been working on it for about five years and this is a 21st century realization of the commodore 65 now i remember first hearing about the commodore 65 when i first got on the internet so it probably would have been around 96 probably and i remember going online and just you know searching for like commodore stuff and seeing an image of the commodore 65 that of course if you don't know was an unreleased prototype although a few did get out after commodore's bankruptcy that was really like a a souped up commodore 64 that looked a bit like an amiga 1200 and had like you know 256 colors it was this weird kind of bridge between 8-bit and 16-bit machines that they were developing in the early 90s and obviously by then i mean the world had moved on to 16-bit architecture so after they'd fully developed it really they decided there wasn't a market for it and after making about 200 prototypes that i think sell for god i was watching nostalgia nerds video on this the other day something like twenty thousand dollars yeah, I, I, there's a few prototypes out there and they just go for crazy money and people are like, oh my God, I've got the prototype. But this is a nice project. This is like a, a kind of continuation of it. And I think we actually met the guy behind it in uh, Amiga Germany. Yeah. Uh, originally, he was he was telling us about this project and everyone was like, what? You're making a Commodore 65? Okay. But now seeing it coming out, it's, it's amazing what he's done and uh, the whole team. And you know... A lot of them are in the bare cases at the moment, aren't they? They're in this kind of Perspex one. Do you think they're going to have a custom case? I know they were talking about it. Oh, yeah, they are. They're working on that at the moment. But um, these are like developer machines that have been released to people. I think there's about 100 of these that put up for pre-order in June. And now these are finally getting shipped to the people that ordered those. There's only 100 of them, though. It's limited edition. And then, obviously, they're going to be able to transplant the innards of that, I imagine, in the, the final case when it's ready. And it looks unbelievably sexy. I'm on the site now, mega65.org, yeah. and they've got <laughs> the pace, that. and oh my God. Yeah, it's just like gorgeous. Uh, you should go and check it. And they have everything on there, you know, even the little kind of symbols underneath the keys that the um, 64 used to have. Well, the keyboard actually on this, because I mean, I was watching Nostalgia Nerd's video about this. You know, Peter did a really good video this week that came out. I think he released it like midnight or something. I was just about to go to bed the other night. And I was like, all right, got to stay up for half an hour and watch this now. Um, but the, the keyboard is one of my favorite things about it because it's, uh, it looks like, like you said, a Commodore 64 keyboard. But they've actually gone with a mechanical keyboard on this as well. Oh, and it's Cherry MX as well. So, yeah, really high, high-end mechanical keyboard. Wow. 
and looking around the ports in a minute, you've got HD output, there's an SD card slot in there as well. It's got Ethernet on board, um, extended memory. It's 40 times faster than the Commodore 64, but they've worked really hard to make sure that it's compatible with it as well. Um, and it kind of, you know, it retains the 8-bit feel. You've got the joystick ports on the side of it, the same like old-school power switch, the physical reset button. That disk drive that's kind of front-mounted that always looked a bit like a ledge that you could put like a, you know, your glass of Coke on or something while you were uh, having a good gaming session. And, Not and recommended. This is an FPGA, right? So yeah. they're saying here that other cores can actually be ported on there or developed and you can make your own core. So they're working on the Amiga core and the Atari ST core as well being ported onto this. So you could have the C65 core, Atari, Amiga, maybe you could get your Acorn on there as well. So this could be like a really sexy multi-use machine as well. Well, that's the thing. It's open source. So anyone can kind of improve it or mod it however they want. So they've kind of thrown it out there. And a few things you'll like that's on here as well. It's got um, four software SIDs on there, but also you can have a cartridge with um, with four SIDs physically that you can use Ooh. in the machine for music. <laughs> oh. This has potential um, with all the um, SIDs in there, yeah. And it's got a four-channel stereo 16-bit digital audio on there as well. So, I mean, you could do a combination of both of those, I imagine. And it, so. and it seems to work with all the C64 expansions and yeah. kind of add-ons as well. And they're also working on a portable version of it as well, apparently, yeah. has dual 4G antennas in there. It's 5G upgradable. <laughs> and nice. apparently it's got the battery life is 1,000 hours of standby battery. Um, so essentially you, you can have a portable little Commodore 65 that you take on the go, so... It is a really cool project. Like you said, I mean, it, these are developer units at the moment. It does boot into the Commodore 65 mode that I know Peter shows off in his video that I'll link up in the show notes. I mean, there are a few things that are not finished yet, but it is, it's early stage for developers to kind of get going with software for it. And uh, hopefully it won't be too long until the, the real machines are released. You know, I'm really itching to get my hands on one of these. I've wanted the Commodore 65 for like, what, 25 years now, so... Well, I've been I'm looking sure. at, like, the Unamiga and the Mister and these different systems, and I'm thinking, if this can run multiple cores and mm. it comes in a lovely little case with mechanical keyboard... That's pretty much everything sorted for me. So <laughs> I may actually be going down this route. Yeah, I mean, I, I back the uh, Spectrum next. So, uh, you know, I've got to get this one after that as well. Just uh, keep that quiet from the missus, I think. Just just to live in a fantasy future world <laughs> with all these machines. <laughs> now, let's talk about something else that didn't actually materialise back in the early 90s, but it's now possible to play. And this is, I mean, we've talked about this before, Sega's lost VR headset. Yeah, this is really, really interesting. I don't know an awful lot about the Sega headset, but we've covered it on the show before. Um, but essentially, was was shown off at the uh, the Electronic Consumers Electronics Show uh, in 1993. And then about a month or two later, Sega just announced that it was dead and gave a silly reason that, you know, it was too immersive for players and players weren't ready for it, um, which I love. You but can't handle you can't You can't handle the 3D, the virtual reality. Um, but yeah, essentially, I think it was just, it was making people sick and it only ran at like 15 frames per second or 15 frames per second. Um, but yeah, the guys at the Video Game History Foundation have got their hands on it. And essentially, they've got their hands on a game called Nuclear Rush, which was actually sent over to them by one of the developers of the game in 1993. And essentially, they've, torn the game down um they've you know what's it called demade it when they reverse engineer it yeah and they've got it running on a, a vive vr headset essentially and apparently it's not that bad it is only 15 frames per second but they've got it running reverse engineered it 
Um, and yeah, they, they've put it out there and apparently it really isn't that bad compared to what people thought it would be. They've posted a video of it as well. Mm. And I'll put a link to the article in our show notes on Wired. Like you said, I mean, it goes really in depth in this mm. to talk, kind of cover all the aspects of it. Um, they've got it running on the, on, the, on the Vive. But then if you watch this video, it does look, I mean, it's kind of a missile command yeah. kind of clone it looks like and you get the um you get one one screen essentially in each eye mm. but i think for the time in 1993 this looks really impressive i mean you think you know the the virtual boy didn't come out until like what two or two or three years after this yeah i think the virtual i want to say 96 for the virtual yeah. boy something like that yeah so you know it, it, it's it's full color and everything. It's not horrible and janky and red and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I I am surprised that they didn't go with it and that they didn't release it because of there was a lot worse out there for you know virtual reality headsets and stuff like that. You know back in '93. So I, I'm really surprised they didn't run with it. Um, but what I think is really interesting is to initially get it running, they had to get it set onto a free an Xbox 360 hand handset. Um, to, you know, use the analog sticks to essentially um, mimic, you know, head movement and stuff like that when they were first trying to get it to work, which I thought was really funny before they actually managed to get running in the Vive. It looks very Sega. Yeah. Like, like, you know, the the way the graphics are done and the parallax and stuff, it's it's definitely nice and improved. Do you think they could ever do this with like the the Jaguar VR headset? (laughs) That would be cool. Yeah, that would be cool. You know, you mentioned, Joe, that you, you wondered why they didn't release it. And I, I think that as well, because you, you mentioned then the Jaguar VR. That was another cancelled VR mm. headset that was around the same time. And there seemed to be a lot of them that were in development that just never made it to market. Mm. And I kind of think, I mean, maybe it was the consumer testing, like mentioned here, you know, that was making people feel ill when they were trying to play these early games. You know, the hardware wasn't really up to it then. But I just wonder if that was a reason, the fact that this, you know, I remember the initial hype. For yeah. VR first time round. And the fact that this is going to be the next big thing, you know, in five years, all games are going to be VR. And it mm. just kind of fell flat, didn't it? So mm. I wonder if it was just a case of the whole industry gearing up for something that then they suddenly realized at the 24th hour wasn't ready. Not going to be a, yeah, it's, yeah. So that's why all these projects suddenly got cancelled. But I think looking at these, it does look like the, the Sega one was probably the best of the bunch from that era that I've seen. Yeah. And you know what's interesting as well is apparently it was going to be $200, which I know is a lot of money, but that was only the same price as the Mega Drive at the time. I'm surprised that they were going to get it out for $200 and everything like that. Apparently that was set in stone and stuff. So it it must be, we we weren't ready for it. (laughs) We weren't (laughs) ready. They were right all (laughs) along. But yeah, I mean, it's really cool to finally got stuff like this up and running. I always love it when you finally get to see things that you read about all those years ago actually in in operation. So Mm. that's really cool. Hopefully we're going to get Frank on the podcast soon to uh, talk a bit more about that because he's been doing loads of stuff recently. So I'll link that up and uh, all our other stories in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, Yuri Geller is... Not a person that we hear much about anymore, especially not on this podcast. But of course, he was. Uh, would you describe him as a magician, an illusionist? No, he's a, a spoon he's a, bender. He's a psychic. He's an actual psychic. psychic. You need to look it up. I'm a, I'm a Yuri fan. Look up Yuri Geller and the uh, Israeli Defense Force. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll give that a Google. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going. I'm going down that rabbit hole. Ex spy, supposedly. <laughs> oh, wow. Also. Madman as well, according to some people. So there's a big mix of uh, views on Yuri Geller. What I always love is that he was Michael Jackson's best friend, but apparently they only actually met like once in person. (laughs) (laughs) This is interesting. 
Well, yeah, Yuri Geller was obviously known for the spoon-bending thing, whether it was a trick or whether he really did it. You know, if you're not familiar with what he did, he would look at a spoon. I remember seeing him on, like, breakfast TV mm. back in the early 90s and stuff, staring at a spoon, and then it would just kind of flop. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Funny, and right? he'd, he'd try and do this stuff like, everybody stare at the TV. Yeah. And then, um, you know, uh, I'm going to control your mind and make you sit up and stuff like this, and it never really worked, did it? But he actually had a bit of a battle with Nintendo. And when reading this article, I kind of remembered seeing that about 20-odd years ago. And this was over a Pokemon card. Yeah, I I <laughs> thought this... I had to read the article because apparently he tried to sue Nintendo in yeah. 2000 um, because of the Pokemon Kadabra um, used his likeness. And I was like, well, he doesn't look like a bright yellow cat pokemon thing with a spoon it's just the fact that it's got a spoon but then i found out that kadabra's name in the japanese pokemon is young gala yeah so that's why and i'm like oh okay right and okay. he's got a spoon in his hand and he's got a spoon i just thought it was just the fact that he had the spoon in his hand but apparently mm. it's the name he's called young gala in in japan as well which is interesting but it says in the like article, a psychic star in the middle of his. Hand, yeah the, the yeah, whole point yeah. is he's, he's a psychic pokemon and he can bend spoons um <laughs> But what I didn't know is, so he's he's now given permission, essentially, for them to carry on using Young Geller, for them to carry on using Kadabra. But it says in the article that the the court case where he tried to sue Nintendo was thrown out in 2003. So I was like, oh, they've obviously just carried on using Kadabra. But you said before the show, Dan, that essentially Nintendo did stop using him. They did stop it. Like, they've not used him for, like, 17 years or something like that. So, yeah, well, in the article here, it says, you know, the, the thinking... The, the hoping that Nintendo are going to start reprinting the cards again, yeah, you know, from back in the day, from back in two thousand. When I believe, I mean, I, I'm not a big Pokemon fan. You know, just watching a bit on TV when I was young, but yeah, I was never into the games or anything. Mm. Uh, but from what what I believe, yeah, it's not a character they've used since. I, I mean, looking at the likeness thing, I kind of a lot of people have been slagging him off on Twitter, saying he's oh, really? deluded and everything. But I can kind of see where he was coming from, if I'm honest. It does seem a bit too coincidental. The the fact that they called it Young Gala. Like, is obviously the biggest thing and the spoon bending. But the spoon bending in the Matrix, he didn't sue the Matrix. (laughs) Did he? It's it's interesting. He's posted a video and he's got like all of the kind of Pokemon merchandise in a big suitcase. Yeah, he's He's got like like, going through it and showing all of this stuff. I think a few Pokemon fans might be like, oh my God, that's rare. Well, I was going (laughs) to say the the cards are really popular. The Gen 1 cards are really popular at the moment, like going for thousands of dollars and, you know, you know, pristine condition, and he's going through this suitcase, and he must throw out like twenty of these Kadabra cards. Like, and he's just like, "This was all my evidence in 2000." You know, it was like, I was a crazy man getting it all together, and I took this into court. He's, and I'm thinking to myself, that might be worth quite a bit. Like, <laughs> he's, he's quite like Sega Urigella. He's good at getting himself in the news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that is one point that's going to come out of this: the fact that he's had this suitcase in his attic for like 20 years. And I imagine in Pokemon communities there are a lot of really rare things in there. Yeah. So maybe that's one of the reasons he's doing it. You might be thinking, actually, I'm going to quite a few quid off this. If I, uh, yeah. I now this now the eBay auction starts. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. So uh, I think it's cool. I mean, he's kind of realised that it was actually a compliment, if yeah. anything, I guess. So, I mean, I'd love to have a Pokemon made about me. That'd be cool. <laughs> the damn wood Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, make it happen. I won't see. I promise. <laughs> Now, before we chat to DJ Yoda, um, something I know you'll be itching to play, Joe. Superman 64. <laughs> oh, that game? Love it. <laughs> Favourite game. It's top of the Christmas list. <laughs> 
Now, if anyone's seen the, uh, it's one of AVGN's most popular videos of all time, I believe. Um, did you ever play that game back in the day? Oh, yeah, I've only seen videos of it, but I... essentially it's uh, flying through rings, isn't it? I never played it myself. And you're spot on now. I've watched, seen all the videos. It, it's just flying through rings. But I remember in my local game and like whenever, I think it came out in like 2000, I remember there being like all the cardboard cutouts of like the cartoon Superman advertising Superman 64. Like it was a big release when it came out and it's rubbish. Like it doesn't even work. Like, But interestingly, um, this was also about to be released on the PlayStation as well. Mm. And it turns out, I mean, there's been a demo version of this for the PlayStation floating around for years. Okay. But um, weirdly, this has surfaced on DeviantArt, <laughs> which is like a website where artists go on. It's generally yeah. alternative artists kind of put their stuff up there. And it is a really, really long post. And again, Frank Cifaldi from the uh, Video Game History Foundation is kind of the guy who's um, kind of put this out there to the retro gaming community. And he's kind of dissected it because, I mean, this, this is pages and pages long. And this guy's saying that um, he's got the full game. Right. And he actually deleted a few bits from it. And he wasn't going to put it out because of all the drama in the retro gaming community. And uh, it, it kind of intertwines it with some Resident Evil 1.5 fan fiction as a physical book. You know, looking at this, I mean, I've tried to get my head around it. I don't really understand the the ins and outs of everything he's trying to talk about in here. <laughs> right. Somehow, this guy managed to get hold of a full version of Superman 64 for the PlayStation from an eBay auction back in 2013. Right. So, from what I've seen in this article, it does look like you can actually play this on an emulator. And it looks quite decent. Like the the N sixty four versions, no, no, but I just mean compared with the N sixty four version, like the rendering and stuff on on the edges, like because the N sixty four had that blur over it, right? And yeah, that was kind of the N sixty four graphics. Yeah, yeah and this one fog, looks a bit more more kind of fog free, but it still obviously has the PlayStation early PlayStation stretched textures mm. and that kind of stuff, but it's just looks a little bit more sharper because of the uh, of being fogless. And it looks like the real deal because, I mean, apparently the file dates on it are like eight months after the demo version that's been out there for a while. But then I'm trying to get the links to download it because on Engadget it says you can play it on an emulator. But then if you click on the DeviantArt link, the, the page has been taken down. So whether this guy is kind of gearing up to release it or maybe lost his nerve and deleted it, I'm not sure. If it does surface, I'd keep an eye on Twitter. I imagine links are going to pop up there over the weekend, hopefully. Um, but I, I, curiously, you know, I want to play it just to see if there is any differences. So I have played the N64 version for about two minutes and exactly like in that AVGN video, just got bored of flying through rings and hitting the sides of them and everything. Not the most fun experience, but I, I've always got kind of a a bit of a perverse interest in games that were so bad that they never actually made it to market. I love this. Like this Christmas, like it's going to be like, what are you playing, Dan? PS5? <laughs> no, I'm playing Superman for my PS1. <laughs> Course it's I like, am. It's like an alternative world this week. We've got yeah. Mega 64, Sega VR, and Superman 64 for the PS1. It's like, whoa. <laughs> the games that never were. Well, you know, speaking of playing games, we're actually thinking of our Christmas party because it's something we do every year, isn't it? We kind of stream some retro video games. And I, I th- we'd like to do it again, actually, because, um, you know, we raised money for charity last year. I think it was about $300 we made. Yeah, it? yeah um, it was really good, yeah. Cash for Kids, a charity here in the UK to um, buy presents for kids at Christmas who normally wouldn't get them, which I think is a great cause. And we want to do something again. I've been trying to think about how we can do 
some kind of retro gaming stream, maybe between Christmas and New Year, it'd be a good time to do it. But our patrons have been helping us out with ideas and testing as well, which we massively appreciate. And I thought it might be a good time to do a quick shout to our amazing patrons, because we had another hangout the other day, didn't we? Yeah, that was great fun, yeah. And and they did give some good suggestions. Parsec is apparently a great yeah. um, system for us to all play online together lag-free. But if you do patron the show, you get behind-the-scenes access to our uh, fantastic After Hours podcast as well as meetups and an ad-free episode as well. And we were talking about all kinds of stuff on the, the After Hours podcast. This is a show that we do exclusively for patrons twice a month. So you'll get two episodes a month. And uh, we're talking about what Amiga Virus is this week. You know, memories of uh, getting those back in the day. You guys give me a bit of a grilling as well. And we talked about getting banned off social media. <laughs> it's kind of a bit of a free-for-all, that show, isn't it? We'll just put the mics up let our hair down, have a bit of fun. And um, judging by the reactions, our patrons are loving it. So if you want to join us on Patreon, and of course you'll be supporting this show and making sure that we can continue into 2021, you'll find the link at theretrohour.com. And for doing that, you will get a mention on a future episode in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you to Maxime Thibodeau. Scott G. Andy Smith. Natalie Robbins. And Nino Salusi. Who all made donations into the running of the show, and you can do the same at theretrohour.com. Now, DJ Yoda coming up in a sec. First of all, now that it is December, you watch any Christmas movies yet, Ravi? Not yet. Well, actually, I did watch The Christmas Carol 2 on Netflix, or, or that one with Kurt Russell where he's the um, Santa. Yeah, it was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but there's tons of movies that you can watch on other Netflix as well that we're actually missing out on at the moment. Now, this is another of this week's amazing supporters, our very good friends at ExpressVPN. Now, of course, now is December. We can officially start watching Christmas movies. The Grinch in your family can't be like, oh, it's too early for Christmas. Now we're into December. It's on, all right? Now, Netflix around the world have actually got Christmas movies that we haven't got here in the UK, or if you live elsewhere, probably in your own country as well, because there's nothing worse than opening Netflix. And we were talking about this before, wanting to watch your favourite Christmas movie and then finding that it's not on there. But get ready to have your mind blown. You know there are around 100 different Netflix around the world, and if you use ExpressVPN, that opens them all up to you. Like we were looking before, Elf isn't on the British Netflix. No, Elf's a classic, uh, really stupid movie as well. That's on the Australia one, but also the best Christmas film ever made. Die Hard is not on the UK Netflix. That's on the South Korean one. So if you use ExpressVPN, connect to the South Korean server, then you can watch that straight away. And also, Gremlins, which is on the uh, French (laughs) Netflix as well. Now, ExpressVPN let you control where you want sites to think you're located. So you can pick from all these different Netflix around the world, essentially surf around the world at the click of a mouse. And it's not just Netflix. I mean, it works with all your other streaming services, Disney+, Plus, Hulu, BBC iPlayer. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but we use ExpressVPN because it is ridiculously fast, isn't it? Oh, yeah, there's no lag at all. Like, I use it on my phone and, you know, I don't even notice sometimes. And that's a great thing, actually. You can use it on your phone and then you can, like, Chromecast to your television. So it's really good fun. And like I said, sometimes I actually leave it on and then Dan gets a message saying, someone's logged in from Twitter from uh, (laughs) America. And he's like, what's going on? Was that you, Ravi? Oh, yeah, sorry. 
That's the thing, no buffering, stream in full HD quality. And it works on your smart devices, you know, your phones, your smart TV, your tablet, your, your consoles. So you can watch whatever you want, wherever you want, on the go or on the big screen. So we want you to visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash retro, and you will get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support this podcast, watch what you want, stream all these amazing Christmas movies and get your holiday fix by heading to expressvpn.com slash retro. Right then, time to get the history of video game music with the incredible DJ Yoda next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on our final guest of 2020 and what a guest to end the year with. Today we're going to be talking to a multi-award winning DJ and producer who's got a big history with video games as well. In fact, he did a tour called The History of Video Games and also featured on games like DJ Hero, Judge the DMC DJ World Finals and we can't wait to get some stories about all that with this week's special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, the fantastic DJ Yoda. I feel like I need to do an air horn and an explosion. I <laughs> <laughs> well, really appreciate you joining us. We can't wait to get some uh, stories about these incredible projects that you've been involved well, in. I'll tell you straight off the bat, the challenge we're going to be faced with is my memory, which is, I mean, <laughs> anyone that knows me knows, like, it's if it's happened in the past, it's pretty much disappeared. So we're gonna. This is gonna be the challenge we come up against. Is with anything with retro in the name, <laughs> I'm supposed to be talking about it. Then we'll see how well I can actually remember. Well, if we have to go off on a tangent, well, I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> my memory jogged a lot. So just be, be ready for that. I mean, I, re- I remember when I first discovered you. I think it was when you did the uh, the '80s cut and paste album back in like the early 2000s. And I was saying before in the introduction, you know, the fact that you were blending like uh, hip hop with like you know Rick Astley and then movie themes and all that. It was like a real nostalgia blast on, on a CD. It was incredible. No, it's funny that. I mean, maybe there's some kind of connection between the fact that I am constantly struggling to remember everything and that I'm also so influenced by kind of nostalgia and the stuff from the past. I'm like <laughs> trying to make sense of it all in some way. But of course, we are a video games podcast and I know you're a big video games fan as well. I mean, let's kind of get back to the start with your video games experience. Do you remember what first got you into it and where it all began? Um, well, with video games, I guess growing up, um, I was... I think the first thing that I would have had at home would have been an Atari ST um, and I would get ST Format magazine and watch Games Master. And in fact, my first job whilst I was still at school, I was because I grew up in Finchley in North London and I worked at a computer game shop called Adam's World. Um, and I and I just remember like filing cartridges and like, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I think it just, I mean, the, the Atari ST and then the, obviously like arcade machines at the bowling alley and that kind of thing, that would have been my introduction to to gaming. I, I, I can't really kind of make sense of the um, the order that things came in. I don't know whether when Game Boys came in, but I feel like that, or even the Tomitronic kind of 3D things, the binoc- binocular ones, that, that might have been pre-Atari ST. Did you um, mm. have any fun kind of making tunes on the ST? Because we know guys like Fatboy Slim um, did their kind yeah, of whole no, early albums on there. I know it was it was a pretty serious bit of equipment if you were into sampling and hip hop and I knew people that did. I never really I don't know what I was you I think I was I'm trying to remember the first I don't think I really used computers to make music until I got a PC way later on. Um and I think that I was doing sampling off um kind of Casio keyboards at that point 
But I was definitely, I remember hanging out with the British rapper called Lewis Parker and he made his whole album on an Atari ST. And I remember him doing it and being super impressed by it. But, and there's definitely been a scene throughout the years of like, you know, a lot of the grime stuff was made on PlayStation, wasn't it? Um, mm. And people were, were producing music on consoles, but it never really, I never really chose to make my music that way. I think it's it weird because um, kind of in your head, you don't really make the connection with uh, the, the machine that you're gaming on as, as, as a music machine. I, I certainly didn't until a, a lot later on. Well, I really appreciate it because it's there's something about that kind of like working with the limitations of the technology that you've got that makes music good. I mean, for me, that is hip hop. That's kind of how hip hop was good in the first place because they didn't they couldn't afford instruments. They you know they just had their record players and they hooked them up to the power supplies in the street, and that was you know that was really working with limitations. And it's the same thing, you know, like if you've got if you've got a PlayStation and you've got another way to make beats and you can do it using a controller, then then great. I like full respect. And I think you probably come out with, with better music for it. Were there any video game soundtracks that you were really into that kind of caught your attention when oh, you were playing massively. games? I mean, like that was the thing. It, that was really my kind of connection to it. And so much of the music of video games, especially in the late 80s and the early 90s, has just kind of informed my whole kind of musical psyche and my whole musical world. Um the ones that re—I mean, really—the the key one, like uh, probably not going to be a surprise for you to hear, but um, Xenon Two, yeah, mm. Mega Blast, yeah, Mega Blast, uh, Bomb the Base. It just—that was the kind of converging of all the worlds of stuff that I was interested in because it was hip hop, it was sampling, but it was kind of <laughs> mixed with that whole eight bit stuff. And I just remember that coming out, and it was—it was the first time that I think we'd all heard like a song, song in a game. It just, it was something that's, it, they kind of, the way that they kind of sampled the music or digitized it, it was kind of a crushed version of it, but it was an actual song. It wasn't just bleeps. And that was mind blowing at the time. I remember it was like a really big deal. And it's such a wicked song anyway. It's like, it's music that I still play when I DJ now. And that came out on vinyl, right? So there was this whole kind of scene where they had like Betty Boo on uh, with the Amiga Magic Pocket soundtrack as well, where right, there were exactly. hip hop records coming out of that kind of sampling well whatever that era was i'm guessing that's probably 1989 or 1990 or something like that but yeah betty boo bomb the bass that was kind of really like the key formative stuff that just yeah that's why i do what i do because it's it was all kind of sample based kind of clubby hip-hop stuff and yeah the fact that it was involved in gaming too that just like i say it was like a convergence of all worlds but that said, like so much of that 8-bit music from that era, it just, it, I could just sit and listen to that now as kind of relaxing music for me. And I think it gets to kind of, I mean, to kind of zoom out a bit and make it a bit more existential. It's to do with what I like about music, which is music can take you somewhere. Same with gaming as well, actually. Like it, it can take you to another, it can take you to a place, it can take you to a time and that is, it's that kind of like escapism in it that is appealing to me. And with 8-bit music, it takes you straight to that era. Like, and there's something about it that's, it's like, it's relaxing to me. It just takes me back to childhood in an amazing way. And, you know, the songs or the kind of soundtracks that really stick out are Outrun, which is probably my favorite gaming music ever, like along with Zenon oh, 2. That Passing Breeze, yeah, I remember that song. Oh, God. I mean, I just, I think I got, um, I think I've got a, tape cassette that came on the front of whatever magazine it would have been at the time but just that tape just got played and played and played the outrun music streets of rage and then obviously like um mario tetris all that stuff but it you know 
still now I'm like a constantly seeking out eight bit versions of hip hop songs or of current music, just because that sound, it does something. It like takes me to a place and, you know, we'll get onto my gaming show, but that was, you know, the inspiration behind it. I think as well, you know, when you realize how, I mean, you think of that era then when these early systems, you know, it's kind of the 16 bit era and the eight bit era, how actually powerful they were for music. I mean, the fact that we could do so much with them. And I know you've actually DJed with Ravi before and you saw him doing stuff on his Amigas and everything, but the fact that he could blast out this, audio from a 30 year old computer and play in like you know a nightclub or a theater and it would actually sound great on these speakers well it's exactly I don't think we what appreciate about in terms of limitations like you you are limited to like 12 notes and they're beeps and they can be short beeps or long beeps or low beeps or high beeps but the fact that you've got those limits and you can work within that it gives the whole thing a sound and a feel and it also just it makes it amazing i don't know why it's making me think of the mandalorian but because <laughs> i just watched it but they like you know they've done this whole show with the mandalorian and the main character's face is a mask he he's got no expressions on his face and they're limited to just the mask and i just it just come back to that same thing of like give yourself um boundaries and limits to work within and things become really good what's hard is when everything's at your disposal that's that's always the, the tough bit i think we often hear that about people who make retro video games, you know, for all systems as well, that they enjoy the challenge of trying to craft a game on these old systems. Yeah, I, I bet I bet they do. And it's the same with making music as well. Like I've worked in studios where they have every kind of synth, you know, there's 200 synths to choose from. And then you're kind of, you, you, there's just too much choice. You're much better just to sit in front of one, you know, you've got like one thing to work with and that's your limits. And it's it's a great way of doing it. And that's, that's why 8-bit music works for me. It's just, it's so clearly... You know, you can hear that kind of thing. You know what it is straight away. There's no like, oh, is this is this an 8-bit song? I don't really know. It absolutely is either yes or no. And it's that kind of weird crossover where it's like, it's like, it sounds like analog media. It's digital, but it's got, you know, just because it's so kind of low digital, it's, it's got that kind of... Like, make expressive music with it is amazing. The kind of trills and the way that they have to make, I don't know, it just, it's, it's like so basic and... But I, I don't know, there's something so appealing that I, I, maybe I just can't put my finger on it entirely. I think it is very much a nostalgia thing and just thinking back to being a kid. But yeah, I mean, that's how I put together that, that history of gaming show. I just went back and thought, well, what have, all, what have been the defining gaming soundtracks of, of growing up? Well, one thing I love is kind of tape hiss and stuff. And when you hear one of those early samples, you kind of hear the hiss just at the beginning before they're about to do it. Like, what? Don't get me started on tape hiss. That is a big. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did one whole album earlier this year, not under DJ Yoda, but under a different name. And I started, I mean, the starting point of that album was hiss, like collecting hiss from VHS and tape and all that kind of stuff. Because there's character and all that stuff. It's like, it's not musical notes, but there's it's, it's going to provide you with a feeling and take you to a place and it's in, just in the space of it. I mean, it's pretty heavy stuff, really. <laughs> well, what music technology do you really miss? Like, you know, is there, is there something that's considered obsolete now or, or, or not really trendy that you kind of really oh, crave? I go out of my way to use that stuff and, and to have it. You know, there's, no, there's nothing like that that I miss because I make sure that I, I'm still using it. And it's, you know, it's really music is just playing it's toys and just and so the fact that I've got I mean I've got I just dug out the theremin this week which I've got in the studio which is to make kind of you know those kind of those sci-fi kind of 50s sounds and it's a toy it's a it's a a kid's toy really but it's it's more fun to make music on than to sit down in front of a grand piano 
I love, you know, obsolete media is interesting as well, because I was watching a video on YouTube the other day um, by Techmoan, who's one of my favorite YouTubers, and he's talking about a band who've uh, just released their, their album on uh, DCC, which was digital um, digital compact cassette that was like a failed format. And they put about like 10 copies of it out on there and had to buy them like Newell stock to release the album and everything. It's Wicked. I love <laughs> old formats. I mean, you know, tape cassette is my favorite format of all time anyway. And mm. I've got various, you know, ghetto blasters. And, you know, for a long time I was driving a car. I only gave it up last year, which had a cassette player as the main kind of music in the car. So I had all my tapes from when I was growing up just to drive around town and listen to music off that format. And that was deeply satisfying for me you know all these engineers who work on like these high fidelity audio formats and then the producers you know you're, you're putting vinyl crackle back on there or tape it's so about shaking the fist like what are you doing that for well for me like that's what's wrong with a lot of modern music is it's all too crispy and perfect and computer made and mm-hmm. no kind of feeling to it and you get that feeling from the wobble and the crackle and the space and all that stuff and so i'm big on analog just uh yeah fuzz well, like each kind of different format and, uh, you know, tape sounding a certain way, each video game system or computer had its own sound or sound chip or, or kind of yeah. beauty and personality. Which systems do you really rate the sound on? Well, like, I mean, I can only go off what I remember from having. So definitely there was, I mean, I'm sure that you've probably discussed this on this podcast before, but so in the kind of Atari versus Amiga era, I very like I was on the ST and I had that. And then in, in during Commodore 64 versus Spectrum, I had the Commodore 64. So I, like those are the ones that I remember. Um, and the games that I remember off that is more what I'm kind of au fait with. So it's, you know, and then once it gets much beyond that, then I think the kind of nostalgia thing fades away a bit. I think the music got too good. Yeah, um, I get to about as far as snares. Yeah, I was going to say and- snares as well, because they're definitely like, um, well, I mean, I, so snares probably coincided with me being at university because I think my three years of university was just basically me in a dressing gown playing um Mario Kart. <laughs> <Nice. laughs> like, that's probably probably did that for about three years of my life. Um, but yeah, the, the music for that. I, I mean, that got sampled in hip hop recently. There was a big hip hop song last year that sampled the um, Star Road or Rainbow Road, one of the levels in um, in Mario Kart, and that's definitely got got a sound to it as well. Um, but yeah, after snares, I think the, the music just got too good. It just became regular music, right? It, it stops becoming computer game music. I think it's because CDs came in then, didn't they? And the, the, all the set, like PlayStation, the, it was on CD. It streamed the music off the CD-ROM, didn't it? So yeah, it didn't have just got the limitations. Well, you start to get at, at, like just songs in music, mm. um, in computer games, and they weren't they didn't have a sound that made them necessarily computer game music. I think Goldeneye probably was one of the later ones that still felt like computer game music and is really iconic. We have talked on the show before about the PlayStation and kind of the influence that it had on music. I mean, you know, that was kind of coincided with that kind of, you know, Britain's kind of growing up and, you know, video gamers becoming teenagers and then going out clubbing and all that kind of thing. I mean, did you kind of um, the see that change kind in video games? Yeah, Wipeout and the Project yeah, Wipeout. Wipeout. That, that, that was very much kind of like a an attempt. It was the fact that it was a Chemical Brothers soundtrack, wasn't it? Like mm. that, that was the kind of connection with kind of ravers and clubbing. But I think there was, yeah, I, I, there was definitely some kind of like, like someone had sat down in a boardroom and been like, well, clubbers come back and play video games at four in the morning. So like, I think that the connection was drawn. Um, you used to see the midnight clubs as well. Oh, yeah. I'd forgotten that, actually, thinking about it. You did, which is weird. 
And that's something I haven't thought about for a while. I mean, I did play a venue in Las Vegas a few years ago, not actually on the strip where all the big hotels are, but in downtown Vegas. I just, uh, it's called Insert Coins. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is like a club with just, you know, arcade machines all around the, the edges of the room. Um, and they're all retro ones as well. And that was a super cool place for me to play because I got to kind of play relevant music for it as well. I was really into that. You seem to sample like old synth sounds and movie samples. I, I remember like we, we were into UK Garage and they were sampling like weird stuff like the poing from the uh, Star Trek original series and stuff like that yeah. into music and yeah, Buddha that, Finger that, and that's stuff. That's like what appeals to me is like trying to, you know, having that kind of um, childhood with the, with all the 8-bit and 16-bit sounds it and then getting into DJing and sampling, it was just like a natural step for me to... There's so many 8-bit samples in reggae, hip-hop, drum and bass, like, and so I, I kind of started collecting that and it, it was it was having kind of crates of that that... that um, started to make me kind of think about doing something with all that kind of thing together. But there are so many iconic, I mean, throughout, like from day one, like from when Donkey Kong came out and there was a, you know, a Will Smith, Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff song about Donkey Kong, right up to the current day that people have been sampling that, that kind of eight bit thing. And there's definitely kind of, you can, you can track it throughout the history of all that music. You know, geek culture in general as well. So, I mean, I mentioned the, the How to Cut and Paste 80s edition mix that you did and the fact you're throwing in movie samples and all that as well. I mean, did, did that kind of influence you, the whole kind of geek culture of the, of the 80s? Well, really, it's like it comes back to hip-hop for me and my understanding of hip-hop was always that... So when hip-hop started, there was no rap music. It was just you, sam- you sampled bits of records that you thought were cool. Uh, and in the 70s in New York, when they had the block parties, they were playing country and western records they're playing movie soundtracks they're playing rock music kids records but it was just about finding the funky bits of each one of those kind of it, it, the genre didn't matter and what it started to become was like you just kind of create if you're honest about the stuff that you're into you create this unique fingerprint of influences by just mashing it all up and throwing it together i mean think about something like the first de la soul album three feet high and rising where they sampled 60s pop they sampled um learn french records johnny cash a 70s funk and it, what it was was their parents record collections mm-hmm. um and so to me all i've ever tried to do is just be really honest about the stuff that i love and my influences so when i was making mixtapes coming up in the 90s i was throwing in bits from computer games that i grew up enjoying tv programs bits from films cartoons when the internet started, like the first kind of videos that I saw off the internet, as well as all the music that I liked and all the films. And it's just, it's just like I say, like a fingerprint of all the stuff that I'm into, if I'm honest about it. And yeah, my tastes do get a bit nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> but then on the other, on the other end, you know, like, you know, I, I'd say it's only kind of one facet to the stuff that I do, but I'm, I'm honest about it at least. <laughs> Well, also in the 90s, like rappers were starting to mention games a lot. Like there was this whole kind of novelty rap uh, Mario tunes style thing. And you had like Biggie Smalls doing a Super Nintendo Sega Genesis and stuff. Well, I sampled that when I made my track with uh, Scroobius Pip, um, which was Sega R.I.P., which has got to go down as one of the nerdiest hip hop songs ever made. (laughs) Um, But we did a whole song about, uh, you know, Echo the Dolphin and the kind of the Sega era and 
I scratched all the eight bit sounds in it, and it, um, and he kind of interpolated that that Biggie Smalls Super Nintendo Sega Genesis line. Um, so Sega R.I.P. was kind of my biggest nod to all that kind of history of gaming that I've done on any of my albums. I think. Do you do you was, see many rappers doing that nowadays as well? Kind of referring to the games a lot. And- yeah, totally. I mean, constantly. I mean, the, the song I was thinking of that that sampled the um, Mario Kart. Uh, level is by a rapper called Dram D R A M, um, and that was like a really big hit last year. But it, it constantly, it, it, it doesn't stop. People sampling eight bit, it, it just continues. And uh, and there's a whole, I mean, apart, apart from the old chip tune kind of genre, which is a whole new thing unto itself, which is just pure kind of eight bit sounds. You just are getting those eight bit samples. It's become part of of reggae and dub. It's just a sound that you associate with with that kind of music, and and then because of that, you associate it with drum and bass, which is so kind of um, influenced by that kind of style of music as well. So it's it's always there. Like you can, if you're looking for it, you can find it. <laughs> it's when I saw um, Doctor Spin do the Tetris theme tune on top of the pops. That's where I, when I realized video game music had gone mainstream. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like the the thing that made me. Um, think to, to do the history of gaming show at all was so i do these kind of uh, audio visual shows when i dj so i'm djing with with video as well as music and i would do exactly what i was explaining before whereas i'd put in bits of films that i like or bits of tv shows and play it on top of the music and just mix it all together but i always found that if i did drop a little bit of the tetris theme and mix it with something else or, or uh, super mario those bits would get the biggest response out of the whole show. So I was like, well, hang on a sec. Why don't I just kind of focus on making it an entire gaming show and just throw in everything that I can think of um, and, and do a whole thing of it. But yeah, I was definitely like, there was this period where, I don't know, I don't think there would have been another DJ out there that would have played the, the Super Mario music in a club, especially not in kind of like a proper hip hop club, <laughs> which, I did, which I did on several occasions, like in New York or you know, something like that, and have this kind of like guy turn up and play Super Mario. I think it was, eyebrows were raised. Well, let's talk a sec about the um, history of video game tour, because I saw that and it was a uh, 90 minute long and you'd also done video clips in the background and they seemed to work seamlessly. And uh, how did you go through picking the games and picking which clips you were going to use? So, I mean, I've definitely got to shout out uh, the Gamer Disco guys when it comes to this, which is uh, Swanee and, and Rory. I don't know if you know those guys, um, but they uh, they like were really instrumental in helping that show come together because I was like, well, the way that I want to do this, I want there to be some structure to the show. So I went purely chronologically. Like it, the, the show starts with Pong. So the, the, you know, the show starts and you get like, bip, bip, and that's like the, the big, and then it ends with the kind of most current thing that I could find. But designing the show like that, I, I realized, okay, there's this sweet spot or this golden era of stuff that I really know about. And I get pretty deep with my knowledge within that area. But <laughs> once it gets past that, I'm pretty clueless. Like, so, you know, anything from the last 15 years, I was like, I don't really know too much about that. Um, so Swanee and Rory from, from Gamer Disco, we sat down, they helped me kind of basically show me what's been important since when I tapped out, which was probably uh, about Tomb Raider. I reckon that's about the point that I tapped out. I don't know why. So, yeah, and the way that the show works is, I mean, when people see, ask, like, how, how's the video syncing with the music, there's a really simple way. It's actually pretty simple. It's just instead of DJing with MP3s, I DJ with MP4s. 
So I'm, I'm mixing and scratching the videos themselves. So I could have, you know, I could have a footage from any game and then mix the video of that over beats and scratch it and everything. It's, it's one of those things that like, I can describe it, but if you watch 30 seconds of it, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> it's easy to see. You know, obviously the, the selection of video games you've got in there is, you know, heavily focused on the 80s. Do you ever find that some of your, your younger audience members are a bit confused and you have to kind of explain it or do they kind of get all the references? Well, for those that didn't grow up in the era that I grew up, I think it's an education. Or, or I think they're quite, it's like music as well, isn't it? Like I, there's, there's plenty to take away and enjoy from, I'm trying to think of an example, something like um, the game Cuba, like uh you know, someone who's 20 years old wouldn't really know that, I guess. But then if you see it, you're kind of like learning about it and it's fun. Like it's the whole point of it in the first place is that it was fun and you get it straight away because it's so simple compared to gaming now. So I think there was an element of it that was probably educational, hopefully fun too. (laughs) Um, But what's nice about doing it in that kind of chronological way is that if you've got any interest in gaming at all, you'll find the bit in the show. You're like, oh, this is my section, you know. We're, we're, We're into the section of stuff that is that I know about and it will be there but then you'll see what came before and what, what came after it's interesting that you use um Street Fighter rhythm um and that kind of crossover with grime and video games because I always remember Street Fighter and Sonic were like adopted by all the really cool hard boys and you know in your local area you'd have all the rude boys playing that you know so there's a few kind of seminal games where you realize it influenced so much music and so many remixes i would say that mario tetris and street fighter are probably the three that have done that the most um but street fighter 2 which i really kind of like i remember really just playing that like big time that's that was me just being ryu and doing that annoying knee kick thing that you could just beat everyone with um and the first scratch records that came out like records that came out just for you to um, just with noises on so that djs could scratch with them i remember they were full of this just china india spain japan (laughs) like and it was and all the noises and the sound effects from street fighter 2 and i would practice my scratching when i was first learning to dj using those sounds well, the DMC World DJ Championships, I mean, that's been going since 1985. You know, it's, it's a historic, legendary competition. And you're actually on there as a judge. I mean, how did that come about? And what did it feel like to be part of it? Um, yeah, there was, I mean, the, the DMC is funny old history it's had because it kind of like, it reached its peak and then, you know, it, then it really fell off at one point as well. Um, but during the kind of, um, the time that I was coming up as a DJ and really kind of, you know, hip hop and scratching was the world that I was uh, operating in. It was all about the battles and like who was the champion and all that kind of thing. But that side of it never really appealed to me personally. I was never into battling as a DJ. I think I just didn't have that competitive edge to what I was doing. I had no desire to prove I was better than anyone else or find out that I was worse or whatever it was. Um, But the thing is, I was around all that. So being one of the kind of the DJs in that world that that didn't battle, it it kind of made sense for me to judge. So that's how I ended up um, at the world championships. And I guess just understanding the the technical nature of DJing and, and knowing what was important made me a good judge. But unfortunately, that world kind of went up its own arse at one point because it got extremely just a techie. It just got so much about the kind of like uh, the specifics of the type of scratching you were doing. And they just lost sight of like it being musical. 
and so it it just became much no one was dancing you know it was dj should be making people dance and it became very technical and they kind of fell behind the times because it was organized by technics who make the turntables and they wouldn't let the competitors use any other equipment outside of techniques and when dj technology started flying off in all these interesting directions they didn't allow people to use that in the in the championships so luckily there's like new versions of it now i think the um red bull organized a thing called three style which is much more uh suited to kind of the way people dj these days and that that's kind of interesting so it was like a it was a funny old blip in the, in the world of djing and it was a fun time, you know. I got to travel the world with it, and you know, saw some, um, hung out with amazing DJs, and just saw cool stuff. So I appreciate it for what it was. One uh, amazing clip I remember is seeing a guy called Mister Tape from Russia who was just using like reel to reels and scratching with them back in the days. It looked well, that's insane. That always appealed to me is people who just did something crazy and different just to make themselves stand out. Uh, and yeah, when people just got really into scratching in a nerdy way, it kind of took away from all that fun stuff. I mean, one of the like most memorable early DMC moments was Chad Jackson, uh, who like put on a stupid hat and scratched the record with an American football and <laughs> just did stupid dances. And like, I don't know. In a way, that's kind of more appealing to me because it's actually entertaining. Were you into like rhythm games like uh, Prapper the Rapper or, or Donkey Konga? Do you know what I think? Uh, I never really, I mean, I was aware of, of both of those, but I don't think whatever, whatever they were on, whatever console they were on, I don't think I had it. So I, I never actually played it at home. I think there was a Parappa the Rapper arcade. Uh, I think it's PlayStation 1, the uh, Parappa the Rapper, but it right. came out a bit later in its life, I think. Yeah. I remember that, like, I remember getting to kind of travel in Japan with DJing and when the dancing games first came out at the arcades there, and you know what, like, Japanese arcades are like, they're absolutely nuts anyway. But when they first, when those dancing games first came out, that was really cool. It was quite, it was a scene. There was like a whole bunch of people doing it. Uh, that was really cool. And I, think that, I think they still do competitions, actually. That's really cool. I love the fact that there's like physical games like that. I think that's that's awesome. And then, yeah, I remember Guitar Hero coming out and uh, thinking that was pretty cool as well. I, I do like that kind of game, that kind of like make yourself amazing at music by tapping a screen at the right time. Well, obviously you were involved with DJ Hero as well um, yeah. and the follow-up to Guitar Hero. How did you get approached and get involved with that then? I guess the guys that, that were making DJ Hero were based in London um, and were looking around at, at, at DJs that were doing that kind of thing and um, and reached out to me. And we had a few meetings where I just kind of talked about DJing and what it means and how it physically works and what's important to me about it. Um, and I think they used that information in putting together how the game was going to work. I think with Guitar Hero, it's much simpler. There's basically chords on a guitar and you just got to kind of hit the chord at the right point. But there's never really been a universally accepted way of writing scratches for DJing. I mean, it's actually something that I got quite into. I did a whole project with a, um, with a classical orchestra and a composer where we kind of transcribed the scratches and found a way to write it and way to make it work for any other DJ that was going to do that concerto. Um, and people have tried that in various ways uh, throughout the history of DJing, but there's not really kind of a universal way of doing it. So we had to think about like what, what kind of scratches are they are there and how would they work within the game? Um, 
So there was a lot of talk about that. And then they asked me if I wanted to have my own kind of level on it, which of course I did. Uh, and I went away and like a lot of the stuff that I do, that's kind of where you're working with bigger companies and stuff, you get these kind of like, well, you can't use any music that you like. You're going to have to use this kind of music or these, these particular songs or, and once again, it comes circling back to what I was saying earlier about limitations. Like it's, you've got to kind of find a way to work within the, co- what the copyrights, what the, what the copyrights will allow. So, hmm. It's also making me think of when I made that um, how to cut and paste 80s mix, like the first thing that the record label told me when we started the project was you won't be able to use any Michael Jackson or any Madonna or any Prince. <laughs> and so straight away I was like, well, what's the point? Like, like <laughs> yeah. how can you possibly make an 80s mix and not use those three artists? But what it did was it forced me to dig deeper and think harder and work within those limitations. And that's a bit like what happened with DJ Hero. Like, I ended up, I think I did one mix that was like um, Jackson 5 mixed with Gangstar. And just because of the nature of the game, you had to find a way to kind of, there constantly had to be scratches or samples happening throughout the thing that you make. Uh, Otherwise, you'd just be sitting there kind of watching the game without doing anything. So you make this weird bit of music that is not the way that you would normally create a mashup like that. Normally, you'd let it breathe a bit more. So it's very intense. Um, but it was very cool and you know i was i was very happy to be involved it was a really interesting process have you still got a setup and uh have you ever considered using the dj hero controller as like a device in one of your sets <laughs> i i often play youtube footage of people playing my level in dj hero as part of a DJ set. Jeez, that's a meta kind of like, <laughs> it's r- ridiculously meta when you break it down like that. But yeah, I, I've thrown it into DJ sets. Well, speaking of, you know, kind of interesting technology, I, I don't know if you've seen these videos on YouTube as well. You often get like floppy disk drives playing the theme tune oh, to yeah. Star Wars and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's find- super cool. I really like that. Yeah. that. And there's another one where they're doing, what is it? It's like magnets or like electric buzzing kind of noises and they're using that to, to play songs as well it's super creative uh, like that's very cool to me like i just i like people doing stuff like that one that blew my mind there was a guy who um he used dot matrix printers to make music oh wicked yeah well they make super cool sounds don't they i mean i i, I like the um the the kind of sound the loading cassette loading sounds yeah. like a fax machine doesn't it <laughs> like it's reminding me i need to sample that for something I love the fact that just people hear music in these really mechanical devices and can I, that just blows my mind. That they're they're, how you even that. It's what I was saying about the 8-bit stuff, it's really evocative. It takes you to a place, especially if it's part of something that you grew up with because it's, these are sounds that you don't, even the kind of whirring of a, of a when you put in a CD and the, the kind of the CD uh, drive is kind of reading it, that's not something that you hear anymore. That's like a retro sound, isn't it? And it just it would just take you back. It's it's interesting how sound can do that. It's it's really interesting actually because Dan was saying earlier this week he loves the sound of a data because they managed to boot a computer off a vinyl record, and he loves that kind of old data sound. And I used to remember they used to put it in tunes, and you'd be sitting there going, "Is someone trying to connect to the internet?" <laughs> in hip hop, there's always sirens in hip hop, and if you're listening to it driving, you're always like, "Is the police behind me?" Oh no, it's just the song. Yeah, pull over. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of the 80s influence, I mean, you did a hugely successful Strange Things mix, mixing in some amazing stuff like, you know, John Carpenter soundtracks as well. I mean, tell us a bit about that. And are there any, any other shows that you considered doing? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the way that I often put together these audiovisual shows is with a theme because, because I'm not restricted by genre or era when I DJ. Sometimes the problem with my DJing is that it's a bit overwhelming even when I sit down to kind of work out what to play, if you're not bounded by anything and I'm just as happy to play classical music as reggae, as punk, as just anything, sometimes I just sit in front of iTunes or the or my records and just think like, well, what is good? <laughs> it's, it's completely overwhelming. Like, where do you start? So a good way to rein that in is to kind of give it something, a nice, neat theme. And every now and then something just comes to me. I mean, like I... I remember when the Stranger Things first season came out, I was just, I finished watching it, really enjoyed it. And I was like, why did I enjoy that? Because it just really just, it was bang on in terms of my influences and the the era that I grew up in. It was very 1984, (laughs) 1983, which is, you know, I would have been six or seven years old. It's like the first kind of cultural things that I can remember. So a lot of the pop music that's played in the show is this, the first music I remember hearing on top of the pops. And it just, it, it, when you find that sweet spot in your nostalgia, I don't think you can ever get bored of it. I know that I've worked with a lot of that music from, uh, from when I was that age and still play it regularly when I DJ and I just never get bored of it. There are some songs like uh, Human League uh, and Hey Mickey and, you know, just that, that, that's kind of sweet spot. I just don't get bored of that music. It, it, it never gets boring to me. Um, and I thought it'd be cool to kind of do a show with all the Stranger Things clips that I like, but also all the music that was related to it and all the films that were clearly an inspiration for it. And you just wrap it up in a neat package like that. And so many of my, uh, AV shows have been designed like that. So I did one that was kind of, um, a best of sci-fi movies. So that's kind of a similar kind of thing in a way. There's some crossover anyway. Um, but I also have had like a kids AV show or a, um, you know, nineties hip hop AV show. Um, and it's certainly like during lockdown and throughout 2020, when all the DJs pretty much moved online, um, I've been theming these kind of, uh, Twitch shows that I've been doing in the same way. So I did one week where I played all, uh, songs that are to do with food. Uh, and another week where I, I played all songs and videos that were to songs that are related to animals, or I did like a yacht rock <laughs> week. Or, so just, right. just picking these kind of like themes is, a, uh, it's really enjoyable to me. I like to, it's almost like a kind of um, like when you're studying at university, you just kind of, you go, you do a deep dive and you research and you discover all the things that you like within that world and then, and then wrap it all up together. It's like a jigsaw. You just kind of put it all together as, hear all the good bits from that and there you go it's neat and it's done move on and it's kind of like stranger things was a bit of a spine tingler and stuff that you use like um attack on precinct 13 the soundtrack for that is absolutely amazing and, yeah, and well, stuff like the twin peaks soundtrack as well it's all of a similar well, that's the thing I mean, my, my twin peaks is my favorite tv show of all time and that is like a whole thing unto itself for me like i'm as big into david lynch and twin peaks as i am into like DJing and hip hop, it's that important to me. Uh, and I think it was the fact that Stranger Things definitely had some influence from Twin Peaks that was, you know, that was totally appealing to me. 
Well, you mentioned coronavirus there, and obviously it must be a, a, a really bad time being a DJ and uh, everyone around you kind of also being affected. Uh, you've been trying to do online streaming and stuff. Um, how do you see the future of it? And uh, have you got any events planned, like um, social distancing ones? Well, the online streaming stuff is actually interesting because it does relate to the gaming world as well because, you know, when all this started, the DJs found themselves without gigs to go to and, you know, those that wanted to carry on DJing were were up for doing it online and I started on Instagram to begin with and bit by bit all these platforms were shut down to DJs because of copyright issues. So uh, anytime I tried to DJ on Instagram or Facebook, the kind of algorithms shut down the the stream within 10 or 15 minutes as soon as it recognizes the song that, that you're playing. So the one platform that everyone kind of latched onto where they realized that wasn't an issue has been Twitch. Obviously, like traditionally a gamer's world, but now suddenly all the DJs are there as well. And that's where everyone's settled. And that's where I do my shows every week. And it's been really interesting doing that. Like it's financially a disaster for me this year like it's completely uh you know the industry has been decimated in terms of live stuff and income but those of us that want to carry on still DJing and I know that I would even if no one was listening and watching I'd be DJing for myself because it's just that's what I do uh so the fact that I've been able to do that on Twitch has been some I've taken some solace in that and you know the good thing about it is that DJing from my studio I can set myself up tech wise in a way that's perfect for me. And I'm sure you appreciate that, Ravi, if you've got like, if you've done your stuff with the Amigas and taken it out and, you know, you know that like you want things to be in a certain way when you're DJing and like it just becomes normal when you're used to touring festivals and everything that something's always going to be wrong. Like it's gonna, yeah. there's either the speaker next to you won't work or one of the turntables won't work or something will be the wrong height or the wrong heat or whatever it is. So it's been really nice to, to DJ on Twitch with a setup that I'm really happy with. Um, and, you, and you get that added interactivity as well of, of uh, people, you know, contacting you saying this is a great tune, the, the well, chat room is, in there as well. I mean, I would, I'd say that's the same as real life. You, it's so interesting how, you know, you get the same person that's like in, in real life, they're drunk and they come up to the DJ booth and shout <laughs> play Drake in your face or whatever. That person exists online as well. So it's just, it's more of the same. And it just, it's so interesting as well how playing on Twitch at certain times of the day and the week, you get different crowds. So there's like a certain kind of crowd that will be in there on Saturday night at 1am and a totally different crowd on, you know, Tuesday at three in the afternoon. And so the, the parallels between the IRL stuff and the Twitch stuff is really interesting to me. But yeah, God, I, I, I do really need the world to open up again so that I can carry on making a living, please. <laughs> that would be good. I've been doing these kind of, uh, the odd socially distanced kind of, it tends to be seated events. Um, and that's a, it's a whole thing unto itself. It's, it's very different as a DJ because you're not trying to make people dance. You're just playing music whilst they're ordering a substantial meal. That is weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scott Jag. Yeah. yeah, songs to go with your Sunday roast. Yeah, exactly. Which is cool. Like I'm I'm down for it. Like it's I like a bit of everything. So I'm I'm cool to do that for a bit. But yeah, I mean I think that within my world everyone's just got their eyes uh set on next summer. It's like will will yeah. we be okay for festivals again next summer? Um and that that will be the kind of you know, this year was a was a wipeout and Hopefully next year won't be. Well, we're all feeling optimistic, I think, now, obviously. We're yeah, we're where we're at right now, it's, it feels like there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, doesn't it? Well, where can people watch you as well? 
Oh, so uh, I guess for the meantime, Twitch is probably the best place. Uh, my, my Twitch channel is just DJ Yoda UK. Um, and then if you follow me on social media, I'm always uh, banging on about where, where you can see me DJ anyway. So that would be the best way for people to do that. Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on our show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good to have a blast from the past. Mm-hmm.